You're listening to the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network. This is Drive Time with Travis Wingfield. Back to throw Tua, looking. Flips it down the wide open! <laughs> Touchdown, Tyreek Hill! Tua knew where he was going right away. Wild ahead of that little man. I really hope you soon jump on his bandwagon. Waddle, waddle. Tua, shotgun, back to throw, looking, steps up, fires, touchdown! You got it! It's Waddle! His sixth touchdown sixth pass touchdown of, the of the day. Drive time with Travis Wingfield begins now. Let me check your pulse if you're not fired up. What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome back to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield. Did you all have a fun bye week? I sure as heck did, especially watching some of the games in our own division. On today's show, though, we're back for an early preview edition here of the Drive Time Podcast. Wanted to get the position by position, matchup by matchup, film study, and stat analysis podcast your way ahead of the holiday. We're breaking down all things Dolphins-Texans with the matchups, the three keys, and what's at stake. From the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex, this is... The Drive Time Podcast. The Houston Texans, and I heard this stat after I wrote up my script, so I'm going to go ahead and put it in here real quick. This is the Dolphins' largest point spread since hosting the Texans in 2003. The season opener that, of course, went the wrong way, and that part is in the script. And we talk about life cycles on this podcast all the time, particularly in the team-building portion of the calendar with all the great draft guests we have on the show annually, and this Texans organization has had some of the most defined cycles really of any team since their 2002 inception into the NFL. They struggled out of the gate like any expansion franchise would. They finished last in the newly aligned AFC South in five of their first six seasons and never finished better than third until their eighth year in existence, which coincided with the arrival of quarterback Matt Schaub. Then a step back to third in 2010, and then the arrival of J.J. Swatt, J.J. Watt, in 2011. They put together back-to-back division titles before bottoming out at 2-14 and 14 in 2013. They turned that around to 9-7 and seven in 2014, then officially shed the expansion tag with a dominant run inside their own division. They win the AFC South four out of five years with a fourth place sandwiched directly in the middle of that 2017 season. And more recently, back-to-back four-win seasons the last two years and coming into this game 1-8-1. and one. How fascinating is that? It is to me, at least. They've been playing football for 21 years, and they have finished first or fourth in 14 of those years. Two of those third-place finishes were four-win seasons. So if not for the friggin' Jacksonville Jaguars these last two years, we're looking at 16 of their 21 years either at the top of the podium or in the cellar. And of course, as every single Dolphins fan knows, despite those ups and downs, they've always provided a challenge To the good guys, the aforementioned 03 season opener was one of the biggest shockers of the century. It was Miami's first opening day loss in 12 years and the biggest favorite of that opening weekend, a game where Miami were 14-point favorites. That was unheard of in 2002. This game on Sunday, they're only, I think, 11 and a half. In the NFL, even today, 14 points is a lot. Back then, forget about it. And that torment against the Texans would continue 
for more than a decade. The 2006 loss was bad. The 2007 loss was expected in a nightmare season, but, and I know I've referenced this a million times, no loss made me more upset as a Dolphins fan than that 2008 game in Houston. Watch the quarterback draw. Matt Schaub's going to run it, coming off massive wins over New England and San Diego to rescue the 0-2 start with the Wildcat offense that year and get out to a big lead on the Texans, but then to lose it after Andre Johnson plucks an impossible 4th and 20 reception off the helmet of, was it Andre Goodman? I don't remember. I do remember what happened after that, though. Matt freaking Schaub on the draw on fourth and goal. I remember having Channing Crowder on the podcast when we first launched and talked about that play, and he agreed with the frustration of it all. Luckily, that team did bounce back and win the AFC East. I do not remember the 2009 game that well at all. I remember the 2011 and 2013 losses, or 2012, I should say. And then we get to 2015, 0-7 in all time, and the Demons were exercised with a 42-0 first half. Six touchdowns in the opening half, and the team split the last two with the series sitting right now at 2-8. to eight. Back to the Texans now. How did they get here? Well, Bill O'Brien was let go midseason in 2020. They then hired David Coley as a sacrificial lamb in 2021, replaced him with Lovey Smith this year after they won... They exceeded expectations last year with four victories. They weren't supposed to win any games last year. They plucked the very talented Nick Casario from New England last year, and he has been as busy as any GM in the NFL. From a volume of move standpoint, they have made so many veteran acquisitions on that team. They did relieve uh, Jack Easterby earlier this year. One of the weirder hirings ever after you know a firing that was greeted by a social media posts from players advocating for his dismissal, but that's kind of been the last three years for the Texans, who made a big move to deal their franchise quarterback after years of nefarious behavior was concealed there as well. Those winning years under O'Brien came at a cost. They dealt premium pick after premium pick in pursuit of maximizing that life cycle under the then-star quarterback, who of course was on a rookie contract, and it never materialized beyond a trip to the AFC Divisional Round and that devastating loss to the Chiefs after a 24-0 lead to open the game. How do you bounce back from that as a fan? I would love to know. I haven't experienced it myself. Then, the 2020 season happened, and that's kind of the genesis of the bottom dropping out on this team. Without the first and second round picks, they finished third to last in the NFL, and you can't replenish your roster with, I, mean, I don't know, Jalen Waddle, Javon Holland, Jalen Phillips, without those picks, uh, without the high picks, I should say, and then signed more than 20 free agents to deals in that one to two year range. Truly a unique offseason, and it wasn't the same this year, but it wasn't that different they are playing with a different quarterback on a rookie court, a rookie contract now as Davis Mills is playing his butt off trying to secure the long-term job security there. Hasn't gone that way so far. They have a stud rookie running back in Damian Pierce plopped into a running back room with just guys that have been kind of cast off from other clubs. And that's kind of how the roster as a whole looks. Brandon Cooks is a big name in the young receivers room. Not a lot of name power in the tight end room either. And it's just this incredibly puzzling roster to make sense of. Like Rex Burkhead, Philip Dorsett, OJ Howard are all key cogs on the offense. The strength of the team might be the line. And while they sure could have used all those picks, not for nothing, Laramie Tunzel is one of the best left tackles in football. So do you want a great left tackle or three premium players? I choose the latter. And that's why he com- commands such a steep price, right? I mean, and they nailed their other bookend player at that position with Titus Howard. Their right tackle's great. I loved offensive guard Kenyon Green coming out. In fact, I love their entire 2022 class as a step in the right direction to rebuilding the roster. Derek Stingley is an awesome-looking rookie cornerback. Same with safety uh, rookie safety Jalen Petre. Christian Harris is the outside linebacker that can play. Jerry Hughes is having a resurgence after a brilliant career in Buffalo, and their bookend there 
the very talented Jonathan Grenard is on the injured reserve. So they do have some talent up front. So there's some nice young pieces. They compete most weeks and have played some tight games despite their record. They played the Eagles tight into the fourth quarter. They took a 6-2 and two Giants team right down to the end and lost by just one score the week prior to the Titans. Granted, context tells you none of those games were ever really in danger for the opposition, but we're trying here. And with that, let's go ahead and get into it. Dolphins offense versus Texans defense. We start, as we do weekly, with the quarterback and the Dolphins offense versus the opposing defense and their safety position. I mentioned the, the promotion of Lovey Smith from D.C. to head coach, and he maintained the play calling this year. And what does that mean? Tampa 2. Nobody loves some Tampa 2 more than Lovey Smith. What that is is cover 2 which you all know what that means, two high safeties, cloud corners underneath, guarding the the curl flat area, and then a middle linebacker who, once he recognizes as a pass, gets on his horse and gets down the middle of the pipe to take away the middle of the field that those safeties open up. It stresses your Mike backer to be ultra-instinctive and fast, and it means a lot of even fronts. Do the Texans have that? I don't think so. Uh, They run 4-3 35% of the time. They run nickel 65% of the time. They don't really match the personnel. Those are the only two packages they deploy the entire season, even when teams go heavy or spread it out. If you're heavy, you'll see 4-3. If you've got three receivers or more on the field, you'll get nickel. So it's a good way, simply put, it's, it's, it's one of the craziest schemes I've seen this year or for any year for that matter. It invites linebackers to cover in the slot. It puts 265 pound players out in space. Uh, one-on-one against wide receivers when teams call upon their four wide looks. It offers free access across the entire field, and that middle linebacker has to be able to flow not just sideline to sideline over the top of outside zone and get get wide on plays. He has to also be able to get 25 yards of depth down the pipe in coverage. They'll also ask him to run the pipe and match with the three to the field from a mugged-up pre-snap alignment. That means on the line of scrimmage, and then you have to chase a receiver you're outflanked against who's faster than you tough ask. They are in a single high look most of the times pre-snap. Cover one, 56%. Two high, 40%. They've played 19 snaps in zero or uh, three snaps with three high. So it's basically one high or two high, and they usually rotate into uh, a two high coverage, two high shell. But that's why we pair film with numbers, because that's more often than not rotated with that too high look, with middle of the field open, and that Tampa 2 backer running on the pipe. As for how they play in terms of their aggressiveness outside, it's 80% with 5 yards or more cushion, and then 21% with 3 yards or fewer of cushion. With Tua, we've seen him attack those types of looks effectively because of his ability to move players with his eyes and anticipate soft spots and zones before they open up. The defense will keep eyes on the quarterback, and ideally, the cloud corners underneath can play the eyes of the quarterback and let them make some splash plays. So for Tua, keep playing at the same level, and he'll have some opportunities to pick up some more chunk yardage. However, if that's not the same performance we get, then this secondary can turn you over and we know the turnover margin can be the great equalizer in a game like this. Incidentally, Derek Stingley, I think, was the best cornerback in that draft, but he only played 36 cover two snaps in his college career, but I think you are seeing him get more and more comfortable each week, but it is a situation where you're playing a guy outside of what he does best, which, yeah, I I don't know. Uh, How about their blitzing and pressure packages? Blitz and production, 18.9% blitz rate is the 10th lowest. Their 22% pressure rate is the 18th most. So there are pretty effective at four-man rushing quarterbacks, and that was even better with a healthy Jonathan Grenard, but Jerry Hughes and Rasheem Green have had really nice seasons so far, but here is where Miami has a massive opportunity. It's the best middle-of-the-field passing team in football, right? We all agree on that. The Texans have struggled there because opponents down the middle, uh, down the middle in 10-plus yards 
over the last four games, uh, not counting the Washington game last week. Daniel Jones, two for three, 41 yards. Jalen Hurts, three for four, 71 yards. Malik Willis tried one pass, and it was picked in that Titans game, but they literally had him throw 10 passes all game. I'm going to throw that one out. And then Derek Carr, four for four with 74 yards. We know the Dolphins have been most effective passing offense on throws between the numbers, 10-plus yards downfield. The Texans, since the bye week, and removing that Malik Willis game, 9 for 11 for a buck 86 on such throws. Tua on play action, league leading 1,005 passing yards off play action. Texans versus play action since week four, 44 of 58, 554 yards, three touchdowns and a pick. Again, I removed the Malik Willis game. Dolphin strengths match up with the Texans' weaknesses very well across the board here. Let's look at their safeties, and it starts with one of my favorite players, rookie from Baylor, Jalen Petre. He's got some serious Jesse Bates to him, the star up in Cincinnati, to his game in that he recognizes concepts develop and he can anticipate them on top of being one of the twitchiest athletes on the field. It's a great combination to have at that position. It's a fun matchup with he and Tua, who has been one of, if not the best in the league when it comes to moving defenders with his eyes and that post-snap manipulation. I don't think these numbers are a reflection of Petre's game this season, and we like, like we mentioned with single, uh, Stingley. He's learning a different style of defense, but Petre is uh, 16 of 19 in coverage this year for 260 yards, three touchdowns, and two picks on 297 coverage snaps. PFF has him with 21 missed tackles on a Houston defense that has the most missed tackles in the NFL. They've also allowed the most yards after initial contact, so contact balance eating up some yak could be a big focus this week. Petre does have 21 run stops, so he's making his share of plays as well. Like most really talented rookies, there's a lot of good, but some ups and downs that come with the NFL season. And then Jonathan Owens is the next safety. I'm not familiar with his game outside of the games I've watched for this prep. This is his first year as a full-time starter after going undrafted in 2018 and catching on with the Texans in 2020. 10 snaps that year, 168 last year, and now 554 this year as a full-time starter. His numbers, 10 of 16, 245 yards, three touchdowns, no picks. He's got just five run stops, and that's how the defense goes with him playing inside less than 15% of the snaps and Petre a little more than half of his snaps down there. But still, he'll bail out and play cover two high or two high look with cover two. But find number five on the defense. He's the Jenga piece back there. It's like this. They're so far off the football. The linebackers are too far up on the football. And these intermediate shots get attributed to them with all kinds of space. That's why the yards per uh, reception and the the yak are absolutely insane against these safeties. They also get called upon to cover receivers deep when the cloud corners pass off. One of the crazier parts of this defense is how infrequently they insert a safety in the running game. And then they missed more tackles than anybody else. On tape, there are a lot of runs that get to the second level untouched. And then it's a bunch of space for these safeties to operate within. Again, it's a tough defense to master that really needs a Brian Urlacher type to make it click and the expectation should legit be in this game to score every single time you touch the football let's go ahead and take our first break and come back on the other side we'll get to the receivers and tight ends versus the cornerbacks we are deep into it plenty more to come here on the preview edition of the drive time podcast your host travis wingfield brought to you by auto nation live nation presents concert week now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Live Nation presents Concert Week. 
Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Back here on a special Tuesday preview edition of the Drive Time Podcast. No podcast for you guys on Thursday and Friday. Enjoy your holidays. We'll have the great Mark Vandermeer from the Houston Texans Radio broadcast on the show tomorrow. We pick this back up here, taking a look at the Dolphins receivers and tight ends versus the Texans corners. I just, like, look, there are a lot of holes in most zone coverages. And I think this one has the potential to see some of those Baltimore openings we saw. It's soft with the roof on top and corners playing big, big cushions. As we referenced the stat earlier, you know, 80% of the time they're playing off coverage. Then the linebackers are easily influenced because they don't have the speed to both get to the perimeter and to the hook zone. You can boot to space with the flats too. Like the team speed is going to be an issue. And against this offense, that's always an issue. Even if you do have a fast defense, they do 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 a fantastic job of limiting the deep passing play. No completions on balls over 20 air yards in the last three games. Derek Carr had a two for two 53 yard day back in week six and Herbert went four for five with 92 throwing the ball deep in week four. But by and large, they've kept the ball in front of them. They protect the roof and play aggressive down front. So teams have really gone after the intermediate area, which again, is where the Dolphins offense tends to eat. And you'll get plenty of linebacker and safety on wide receiver matchups. Again, one of the most zone-centric defenses in the NFL. So the individual coverage numbers don't always tell the full story. The amount of off coverage they play out there, however, opens up that space in the flats, in the screen game, and with some runs around the edge. So our receivers need to block the screens well, block the runs well, and make some people miss to turn short throws into chunk gains. We know Tyreek, Jalen, Trent, Sherford have all excelled in that area all year. So while it's always enticing to attack vertically, and if you get a chance, absolutely do it. Why not? But it's the more enticing part of this matchup is that where Miami's had its most consistent success, that area has consistently given the Texans the most issues. Every single week, it's a lot of completions and the short areas outside the numbers, almost nothing by way of perimeter shots, 10 or more yards down the field, but a bunch of throws in the middle, which is how the Tampa 2 defense kind of funnels things. Primary corners on the field for the Texans. Derek Stingley, 309 coverage snaps. This is before last game, by the way. I didn't update my stats. Uh, 309 coverage snaps, 33 for 49, 414 yards. No touchdowns and a pick. Steven Nelson, 310 coverage snaps, 20 of 33, 198, a touchdown and a pick. Then in the nickel, Desmond King, 216 snaps, 16 of 23, 182, no touchdowns and a pick. So teams are getting a lot of yards when they put the ball up in the air. The corner with the next most coverage snaps is uh, Tavier Thomas. I think I said that right. Just 17, but those are recent. He's playing well for them recently. Curious to see if he gets a shot at more time this week. I'd love to give you a more detailed look, but I think it comes down to just continuing to do what you do well and challenge them to stop it. If they play with that secured roof up top, we saw the Browns do that all game long in Miami through those inbreakers, comebacks, and then operated in space to Sherfield, Gasicki, and backs when Tyreek and Jalen stretch the defense out. That style paired with how I think the running game can do, I'm just not sure what they can do to stop it. 
to be completely frank with you. One of my favorite things to track each week is the athletic ability of the secondary versus Miami, primarily in the slot when Tyreek and Jalen can condense inside for a few snaps and just change the game from that area. Desmond King's the primary slot guy. He's a 4-6 guy with great change of direction, a 6-6-7, 3 cone time, but he's a slower build to speed guy with just a 9.09 broad, a 34-inch vert, so he's not very explosive. I like Waddle and his route running and quickness here in this position. Steven Nelson's a 4-5 guy, nearly the exact same broad and vert as uh, we talked about with King, a decent 3 cone just under 7. Tyreek was 6.5 for what it's worth. So when you think about how to compare those, a 6.5 three cone versus a 7 three cone is a big change of direction mismatch. And then Derek Stingley was 4.45. We did see Tua get him deep on a deep ball against the LSU Tigers uh, with Bama a few years back. Better explosion, but his three cone was dead 7-0. So like the matchups just aren't really there. You can see why they play so much off coverage, not a lot of shiftiness to deal with guys like Tyreek and Jalen at the line. On the offensive line versus defensive line, Jerry Hughes can still do it, man. He leads their defense in pressures and sacks. He rushes almost exclusively off the offense's left side, but we also saw what Teron Armstead did to keep Miles Garrett to just one pressure on 22 pass rush snaps. Jerry Hughes is a technician with a great first step, so it's a fun matchup of good on good because Armstead's technique is as good as it gets. The Texans come in with the worst-ranked run defense in football. Again, there's no reason to think this can't look like the Cleveland game. They are super thin on the interior. Jeff Wilson again. It's an area they've had some bad luck with from an injury standpoint. Four of their eight players on the various reserve lists this season are front seven guys. Malik Collins carries the most proven resume inside. He's got a quick first step off the ball that allows him to get their one gap penetrating defense started inside. But just 13 quarterback pressures, eight run stops. I always enjoy watching the Dolphins go after these one-gap defenses that want to beat you to the gap because that's a lot of what Miami's offensive line does well, and it always fascinates me how fast and precise our guys are up front against a like-minded defensive line. Connor Williams has been such a glue piece this year in that regard. Whether he's got a one-man responsibility or he's attacking with one of the guards on a catch-climb double-team situation, he's just been everything you could ask for. So for Collins and Ray Lopez, a second, you know, a second year player drafted in the sixth round two years ago, also 13 pressures and seven run stops. Or for Kurt Hinnish, an undrafted rookie this year, who's got seven pressures and five run stops. I mean, those are your top three snap takers on the interior. They all fall 6'2, 300 to 315 pound range. So winning off the snap is going to be a key with both Robs, Hunt, and Jones going 335 and 334 against those undersized guys. If they get to the spot first, they're not going to get off those blocks. So play the way you have been. If you thought the line caught some bodies against the Browns, this could be a clinic this time around. The Texans roster is not that far off from the Dolphins' 2019 roster, quite frankly. And outside, we mentioned Hughes. His 30 pressures are more than double the number two guy. That's exactly double. The number two guy with Rasheem Green having 15. They are your top snap takers among your down linemen. That's a great pressure rate and gives you a sense of how they're getting pressure at a rate better than their blitz rate. 45 pressures on 375 pass rush snaps from those two edge defenders is a total of 12% pressure rate. It's a good combination. It's big matchups for Teron Armstead and Brandon Shell, provided that's the tackle combination going into the game. Style-wise, Hughes, again, that physical technician. The latter aspect always makes for a fun matchup against Teron because he typically handles it. And then Green and Shell would be a fun matchup too because Shell at 6'5", 324, checks in against a big, heavy-handed Green at 6'4", 280. Fun matchups there. Agbanio Aquaronco, I know I butchered that, not going to try it again. 
kept showing up on the tape against the Giants. He's their top sub rusher off the bench. Nine pressures on 105 pass rush snaps. Keep an eye on him. He's a pretty good player. Their numbers defending the run off the edge are really good. Top 10 in the league, in fact, but their average yards per rush between the tackles are dead last. Again, Jeff Wilson. Uh, Running backs and linebackers takes us to our final position group here on this side of the ball. Just want to start by saying I love the way Christian Harris plays. He's the Jalen Petre of the front seven. He knows where he's going, and he gets there fast. He missed the first five games, but, man, he's popping up against the Giants on that tape, cutting down the runs, screens, playing well in coverage. He was a workout beast with elite scores and all the explosive and time metrics, and he plays like it. However, there are countless situations with – A play-action look, and the linebacker has to honor the outside run and then try to turn and run with anybody who is condensed into the formation. And we do this with receivers, with backs, with tight ends. I just don't know how it's going to work. And then the fact that they mug up and bail out with a 10-yard landmark drop, it puts so much stress on the linebackers in the defense, and that's a rough pairing with their RAS because Harris is a stud with 11-foot broad, uh, 4-4, 40-time, blazing 10-20 and splits, but from there it gets pretty rough because Christian Kirksey, uh, uh, Blake Cashman, it's not, it's not their bread and butter. Christian Kirksey has 23 run stops this year, but teams are 25 of 35 with 262 throwing a ball against him. He's the only one that has significant pass rush snaps, 35 snaps, nine pressures. But teams, these guys' coverage numbers are terrible because of the way they're put in these positions. Blake Cashman, five run stops, just 14 coverage snaps. Uh, Harris has nine run stops, 11 for 14, 126 yards throwing at him. All of these guys allow 10.5 yards per catch or better. That's a lot for linebackers. It's a lighter, faster linebacker crew, 235 pounds for the two primaries in Kirksey and Cashman, 226 for Harris. So again, it's I think their 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 play styles are not going to benefit them against either the run or the pass. The combination to in, of the inability to hold the point of attack at the point of attack paired with linebackers that get stuck on blocks. Hopefully, the Dolphins can execute on a similar level as the Cleveland game because no trio of linebackers has fewer run stops and a worse run stop efficiency. So that's your look at the Dolphins' offense for the Texans' defense. Let's go ahead and take our last break and come back here and do the other side of the football. Dolphins and Texans coming up here in week number 12. That's next. Drive Time Podcast. Your host, Travis Wingfield, brought to you by AutoNation. Segment number three here on a week 12 preview edition of the Drive Time Podcast. When we pick it back up, we're going to do the entire Dolphins defense versus Texans offense in this segment. And we start with the quarterback position and the offensive structure versus the Dolphins defense and their safety position. And their offensive coordinator, Pep Hamilton, has coached in a lot of successful quarterback rooms around Uh, Been around a lot of polished quarterbacks in this league. He's had stints as an OC across pro and college football, which is where he is now with the Houston Texans. They run an offense that aligns as follows. 11 personnel, 50%. 12 personnel, 17%. 13 personnel, 9%. They run out 21, two backs, one tight end, 12% of the time. And two backs, two tight ends, 22 personnel. That's 9% of the time. That's more variety than most offenses, and it's an offense that lends itself to a lot of power running and a successful run game at that. The key here is I don't think it's all that dissimilar to the Browns game last week that they want to run it, and the best way to defeat that plan is early down success and scoring points on offense to eventually flip them into a one-dimensional attack. Most teams have been able to do that this year. They'll still commit to the run and get their yards, but by the time they do, it's usually over. They add 
had gaps in the running game, which you can see with all the additional tight end fullback action they have and their personnel usage. What I think is interesting about all this is twofold. Number one, it's one of the most conservative offenses in the NFL. They subscribe to the establish the run where the defense down two to three yard runs can become 20 to 30 yard runs later. They run the ball in early downs. If they throw incomplete on first down, they'll run the ball in second and 10. It's a tough offense for a young quarterback like Davis Mills because the majority of his pass attempts come in obvious passing situations, which is the toughest time to throw. And then two, I don't think he has a lot of autonomy at the line of scrimmage because the Giants game featured an awful lot of running into bad box counts. And then off that, they can, you know, their ability to move Mills in the running game allows him to boot and build speed where he can be effective as a runner or thrower on the move. I mentioned this about Mac Jones and Jared Goff, and I think the you know the style is relatively similar. If you can hem those guys in off the edge and force them to play inside, you can potentially get some big plays by way of sacks, tipped balls, bad timing. It is a traditional style run game with an immobile quarterback. Again, this should be Cleveland part two, but better. The Giants came after Mills when they got behind the chains and they were effective with it. They blitzed him on 24 of his 41 dropbacks, but he plays really poised for a second-year quarterback, and we'll cover the Texans' line here in a moment, but it's a strength of the team. Mills was 13 for 21 with 166 yards against the Blitz. That's really dang good. In fact, on the year, 65% on 97 throws for 7.8 yards per pass, five touchdowns, and no picks. That's really good for second-year QB especially. Last game, we saw Miami dial back their blitzes to a season low, but they registered their best pressure rate. That's the thinking behind Bradley Chubb, right? He pairs so well with Jalen Phillips, and either one of those guys, one-on-one, is a mismatch. Then that creates one-on-one chances for guys like Christian Wilkins and Zach Sealer inside. I'm curious to see the plan here. And yet again, just like Cleveland, this is a four-man rush game all day long. That, of course, is always the case with Javon Holland. Where does Javon Holland find himself on a snap-by-snap basis? He's been a massive part of one of the best defenses in terms of defending the intermediate and deep portions. The Browns were just 4-for-10 throwing the ball 10-plus yards in that game against Miami. Mills downfield has been very effective. 57% completion, 495 yards and three touchdowns, but also four picks. And a lot of that is taking the chances with these high arcing deep balls. So with Javon's range, maybe he can prevent them from taking those shots or even get his hands on one or two. Mills does tend to put a ton of air under these throws and it does take 3.12 seconds on average to get it off. So I think Holland would be able to kind of contend just reading his eyes, but also the pressure up front. Again, it's a good recipe here for Miami. Mills' time to throw this year is 2.63 when not blitzed. Miami's average four-man rush time to hit the quarterback was under 2.5 last game. So something has to give in that stat. I think Miami's finding their groove with their four-man rush. And then with regards to Eric Rowe, expect him to have a busy day sticking his face in the fan against the running game of the Texans. They want to get Pierce downhill, and I'm always impressed by the way 21 takes on his one-on-one chances at the point of attack against big backs in the running game. Receivers and tight ends versus cornerbacks, it starts with Brandon Cooks and kind of ends there too. Going back to Oregon State, he's one of my favorite route runners I've ever seen. Explosive, twitchy in small spaces, excellent hands and feel. He's their guy. With Miami's four-man rush looks last game, they're able to vary coverages even more, and that's a big reason with how you wind up with everyone getting targets on everybody across the board. There's a slight trend with this team where X is performing well, particularly against bigger body-wide receivers, and Cater matching up nicely with the more shifty guys, and he plays really damn competitive in the slot, but Cooks only goes in there 26% of the time. You'd think it'd be more than that? 
but it'll be interesting to see how those matchups play out. To me, X gets cooks when he's wide, and Cater takes him when he goes inside, but also more to that in a second. Nico Collins is next in targets. He has uh, Cooks has 20 more targets than Collins does. He's the complete opposite of Cooks. He's six foot four, 215 pounds, and wants to play above the rim. How about this stat? Nine for 11 on contested catches. That'll be fun to see if they go after him when he draws number 25, Xavier Howard in coverage, physical on physical. The Texans throw short of the sticks on third down at the third highest rate in the NFL, so it's very important to come up and tackle. They have over 1,000 yak yards on the season, so tackle, tackle, tackle. Chris Moore, Philip Dorsett get the next most targets, and they're kind of like Cooks and Collins in that you have a bigger body and more and a smaller shift your type in Dorsett, but this is a group Miami should be able to match up well with. Only Cooks gets consistent separation. I would probably double him and let the Texans take their, you know, their basic stuff, you know, outside the deep shot, back shoulder hitch conversions. Let him try it. You can play a lot of man coverage because in an immobile quarterback with not great separation downfield, he's not going to drive throws to the field side of the formation either. So you don't have to have a safety over there. Can you put Holland closer to the line of scrimmage that or double the boundary? To me, this is a game where you turn Javon loose a little bit in terms of play that man-free coverage, you know, single high safety, man coverage, rush four, and see if eight can't hunt a couple of picks back there. I think he can in this game. On the offensive line versus defensive line, really good O-line here for the Texans, and of course that plays into Mills' ability to hitch up, scan the field, and throw from clean pockets, but also pick up those blitzes and afford him more time to get the ball to his hot. Laramie Tunzel's one of the best has some of the best feet I've ever seen at any position, much less left tackle. You're not going to cross him up. You're probably not going to beat him with speed either. So I wonder how often you might see Chubb go with that bull rush and try to push through him. One thing I love that he did against Cleveland was rush the inside post and stress the rest of the offensive line when they slide protection away from him. The Texans will slide away from Tunzel because he's such a good one-on-one on an island matchup guy that you can potentially push that inside post and get more pressure coming around the outside. Fun one to watch there, Chubb on Tunzel. I'm a huge fan of Kenyon Green, even though his rookie year has been a very slow start. He leads the team so far with uh, 33 pressures allowed. In fact, on 378 pass blocking snaps, Tunzel has just seven pressures allowed, and he's played every snap at the other tackle position. Titus Howard has played every snap as well, and he has just 21 pressures allowed, so the tackle position on balance is pretty good. But you kick inside, and all three of their guys have played like 90% of the snaps between Green, Kessenberry, and A.J. Can. 33 pressures, 26 pressures, and 15 pressures. So that's where you can kind of get some heat on this team up the middle. The first thing you notice there is how much continuity they have. They've been largely healthy on the offensive line. They do utilize a lot of heavy personnel as well. So in addition to the extra tight end and fullback, they'll bring Justin McCray or Casey McDermott on the field for some six and seven man offensive line formations. And with those pass rush numbers, remember this team passes a lot against teams that know the run game is out of the equation. But when the scoreboard is still within reason, both Green and Kestenberry can blow guys off the ball, blow hats off the ball, I should say. This is where Miami's size comes into play. Need a strong showing from Wilkins, Davis, and Sealer, and then from the backers off the edge. That's where I think a lot of this defense drives and or drives from, I should say, and then the interior guys can get off blocks and make plays of their own. Finishing up at running back and linebacker for this position or for this side of the football. Uh, one of the most productive backs in football in Damian Pierce, and I think his style is similar to Chubbs from last game, and that you better get him behind the line. And don't let him build the speed. I thought Baker's uh, Baker and Roberts played as well as they have all year, and really as Dolphins, frankly, and almost took the challenge of Chubb personally. Would love to see a copy and paste performance there. They are such a unique offense in the sense that they are more than happy to eliminate eligibles 
to get extra gaps. So it's a big game for the linebackers. To provide some context to that, Houston is fifth in the NFL, running from 21 personnel with 6.6 yards per carry. So defending a fullback in the running game, big piece of a challenge this week for Miami. Pierce has 20 runs of 10-plus yards. He's averaging 3.6 yards after initial contact and has forced 53 missed tackles. They have a 50-50 man zone split. It's a really good, diverse running game. That's how they get their points. That's how they get their yards on offense. Stop him. You'll stop their offense. On special teams, really good DVOA. Number four in the NFL. Miami's dead last in that category. Kaimi Fairbairn's one of the best kickers in football. He has just two misses this year out of 19 field goals. He's seven for eight from the 40 to 49 range, five of six for 30 to 39 range, and has hit all three of his kicks from 50-plus yards. They've punted 44 times with Cameron Johnson for an average of 48.7 per punt. Granted, this was before the uh, Washington game. I recorded this late Sunday, so I didn't get that updated just in time. Jason Sanders is 13 for 17. Three of those misses from 50-plus, and of course, a 29-yard kick in Chicago. Thomas Morstead, 31 points, 45.7 per kick. What's at stake here for Miami? A four-game winning streak, a chance to pick up a win in conference, which is always valuable in future tie-breaking scenarios. We are officially to Thanksgiving, so you can start taking a look at the standings and the Dolphins' position in that competitive AFC East, jockeying for a position with Buffalo and the Jets, and depending on what happens with Thanksgiving, the Lions and Bills, it could either be trying to keep pace with them or stay out in front of them atop the AFC East, which is something we know all Dolphins fans want. A home playoff game sounds lovely. Getting a win here keeps you in line to do that, but also, hey, like, don't lose to a one-win team. You want to undo all the positive momentum you've captured, lose to this team, and that'll accomplish that. The three keys, start fast. Get out to an early lead, put the Texans behind the scoreboard, and that's going to change the way they play offense one-dimensionally. Big way for this Dolphins team to get going. Number two, run the ball and utilize play action. We talked about these spaces in the middle intermediate part of the field, throwing the ball off play action and putting those linebackers in a bind. Keep those conflict defenders in conflict. And number three, get hats to the ball on defense. Don't let Pierce build up to speed and let him run through tackles. If you get him behind the line, he can't do his stuff just like we did with Nick Chubb two weeks ago. Those are your three keys. That's your matchup uh, preview edition of the Drive Time Podcast. Mark Vandermeer on the show tomorrow. Don't don't do not miss him on the podcast. In the meantime, you all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Wingfield NFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank Podcast, the post-game show on 560 right after the game ends down here in local radio in South Florida. Our Wednesday night Twitter Spaces show. No show this week. Back with you guys next week uh, previewing the Niners game and the big trip out west to the two California teams. Also, the international podcast. I believe I'm doing the Brazilian podcast this coming week. Check that out as well. The YouTube channel for media availabilities and Dolphins today. Some drive time and fish tank content. And last but not least, MiamiDolphins.com. Until next time, fins up. Caroline, daddy's coming home.